Welcome to the Yogi MD podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Today, my guest is the author of This Chair Rocks, a Manifesto Against Ageism, Ashton Applewhite. She is an internationally recognized expert on ageism. We have a mutual friend, Rachel Lancaster, whom you will meet in an upcoming episode. Ashton speaks widely at venues that have included the TED Main Stage and the United Nations. She is a leading spokesperson for a movement to mobilize against discrimination on the basis of age. She's here today to talk about her book, This Chair Rocks, and Ending Ageism. Your TED Talk was fantastic. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I'm so very grateful to Rachel for introducing us and and to you for accepting the invitation. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks for (laughs) spreading the word. Please share your story about how you became a writer. I had no dream of becoming a writer when I was young. I loved to read and I hid out in books. And a million years ago when I you know, had to go find a real job, I got a job in publishing because I thought they'd pay me to read. Little did I know that this meant that they would <laughs> underpay me to cart uh, home enormous qualities of quantities of heavy heavy printed out manuscripts on badly written on really boring subjects. I became a writer in my early 40s uh, when I was uh, ending my marriage, learned that two-thirds of divorces were initiated by women, was completely astonished because I assumed it was 98% men dumping their sad, old, useless wives for fertile, young, trophy wives. Hmm. And that became the catalyst of my first serious book, which was called Cutting Loose, Why Women Who End Their Marriages Do So Well. Um, I don't, I love the thinking. I do not enjoy the writing. I find it very, very hard work. But um, my daughter said to me years ago, Mom, if if writing is so awful, why do you do it? And I said, because when when I read something I've written that's good, it feels better than anything else I can imagine doing. So mm. I write as a means to an end. I write books, I mean, which is just, I wrote that book, that was so awful, I never wanted to write another one. <laughs> this is going <laughs> to stop all your listeners from their literary, but lots of people write more easily than I do and don't attempt to synthesize a vast amount of scholarly and popular information for mm-hmm. the reader. It is a, it is a big task. Mm-hmm. You know, I write because something important seems worth saying. And it was very much 20 years later when I started to learn about age and aging. And it was the same thunderclap. I learned in 30 seconds that so much of what I thought I knew about getting older was a way, you know, way off base or flat out wrong. And it was the same. Why don't we know this stuff? Why don't we know that women you know, leave their marriages and are better off, you know, in greater numbers than we think. Why don't we know these alternative, um, you know, scenarios about aging that are based not just in research, but when we look around us and see all the older people around us who are engaged in the world in all kinds of interesting ways. And P.S. don't want to be any younger. Why don't Hmm. we rely on what we see and hear around us? Why are we so brainwashed? So, those are the catalysts for my serious books. And I write it because, because 
I, there are things I learned in order to make sense of my own experience that I thought would be valuable to others, women in particular. Messages that we really need to hear and your voice is absolutely needed um, and we need to make it louder. I mean, in a way, thank you. I mean, in a way, just be less afraid. Be less afraid of divorce. Be less afraid of aging. Be, be less afraid of, of taking that risk because, because the odds are you'll be happier and better off out the other end. What is ageism and what led you to become such a passionate advocate for speaking against it? Ageism is stereotyping and discrimination on the basis of age. It's any judgment on the basis of age. It could be too young as well as too old. I think it's important to remember Younger people experience it too, so it is really a prejudice that, that affects all of us for obvious reasons and that casts a shadow across our entire lives. And why do you feel so passionate about speaking against ageism? Because we all get older, because mm -hmm. like all prejudice, uh, ageism operates to divide us and pit mm -hmm. us against each other, mm -hmm. because I think it's not healthy to go through life dreading your future. Hmm. I, and because it, it, it legitimizes abuse and segregation and isolation and in the biggest possible view, you know, humanity is facing an unparalleled set of, of challenges, you know, from rising, you know, tribalism and separatism to rising waters. And we need to come together at all ages to solve those problems and a movement against ageism and the international intergenerational friendship and collaboration that is both a f uh, both the result of being less ageist and a force in making us less ageist because it's much harder to be ageist if you have friends of all ages just as it's harder to be racist if you have friends who don't have your same skin color or your same mm. background so i think it's incredibly important from the most personal level to the broadest geopolitical level you know, it's such a huge topic. I do think that the emphasis on health is really valuable and important. It's also, it's where a lot of the interest is because, regrettably, of the equation in the popular imagination of aging with decline. And, you know, there are two inevitable bad things about aging. People you've known all your life are going to die. Mm -hmm. and some part of your body is going to fall apart. Mm -hmm. Those are the only two inevitables. Cognitive decline is not inevitable. Mm -hmm. And the point is, of course, we adapt and change and that there are also all sorts of positive aspects to aging that go undiscussed. Mm -hmm. And on, so sometimes I say I'm in, you know, the both sides of the story business. Like let's, Alzheimer's is a terrible disease, for example, but Alzheimer's rates are dropping fast. Why do we never hear about that? Because um, it's not sexy. It's not sexy. <laughs> it's not alarmist. It doesn't help people sell things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, fear is much more, you're much more likely to, clear, to click on a terrifying, you know, story about someone who gets early onset Alzheimer's than you are a story about the, the truth of the matter, which is that most of us will muddle along just fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, the health piece 
you know, what I, what I want to do is help catalyze a mass movement against ageism like the women's movement, because we're not going to have change in healthcare or the workplace or for women, you know, between our ears and our ideas about our own value and attractiveness without a grassroots movement to change the underlying culture. But mm-hmm. that's a big abstract sell. I think the way into it is a public health campaign because of all the fascinating evidence about how attitudes towards aging affect how our minds and bodies function at the cellular level, which mm-hmm. is, you know, which might sound woo-woo, but we've known about the mind-body connection for a long time. And I'm sure as a yoga instructor, you know more about that than I do. And I mean, the latest study shows that people with a more realistic attitude towards aging. They say more positive. I say more realistic because honestly, a more realistic attitude is a more positive one because the un, you know, the mainstream um, ignorant one is so terrifyingly negative. People with a more realistic attitude towards aging are less likely to develop Alzheimer's even if they have the gene that predisposes them to the disease. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? And the idea is that the positive attitude helps buffer you from the effects of stress and prejudice, um, which are in this, in, you know, in this case, the effects of ageism. And of course, they are compounded by racism, by sexism, by misogyny, by all the, all the other evil currents in American life. Absolutely. I loved reading your book, the main topic that we are going to be discussing today, This Chair Rocks. A Manifesto Against Ageism. Mm-hmm. And why did you write it? Uh, I, I started it because I was afraid of getting old, and it took me a long way, many, many years, to find my voice. I never thought I would become a public speaker or a public figure. If all this does is make me feel so much better about my own late life, that may have to be enough, and that's a lot. But then it just, it seemed to be a message that a lot of people should get. People at either ends of their lives are more vulnerable. If the Mongol hordes are at the gate and everyone has to jump on a horse and scram, it is the the very young and the very old who will not survive that. Hmm. But we also live in a world that is increasingly ruled by global capitalism, which reduces the value of a person to their conventional economic productivity. Children don't make money and they don't vote. And a lot of older people are perceived, correctly or not, as not, um, not making money, not contributing. Although, of course, we contribute in all kinds of ways to mm-hmm. society that are not conventionally valued. As there started to be more older people in the 20th century um, in the U.S., age started to be perceived as a social problem age segregation started to creep in schools. There stopped being one-room schoolhouses and we started to have grades. Residences for senior communities started being created. Age um, and, and programs like Social Security, which lifted millions and millions of older Americans out of poverty, but which also contributed contributes to the notion that older people are dependent and a drag on the economy, which is absolutely not true. When times are tough or people are anxious, we look for scapegoats, and older people are very, very convenient scapegoats. So you see a rise in ageism and in other forms of prejudice for the same broad reasons when when money is tight, when we're worried about stuff. So mm-hmm. that is, those mm-hmm. are all reasons that ageism is on 
the um, on the rise. What are ways that olders help contribute to society that are not specifically monetary, but are still valuable? Well, here here's a very literal example. If I do not go collect a paycheck anymore, but I watch my grandson so his parents can go collect a paycheck, I'm contributing to their economic productivity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Volunteer activities tend to be undervalued in our society, but um, the, the, the amount that, that people over, over 50 contribute to the economy in the form of volunteer services is, is in, in the, I believe it's in the billions of dollars in the United States. Every time you, you set an example of any sort of something that you couldn't do if you were younger, you are contributing to the knowledge and the value of the community. Older people took a tremendous hit when um, the, the printing press was invented, which is, you know, life happens. That's not ageism. That's just the march of history. But we used to be the repositories of, of all knowledge. When you needed to learn something, you went and asked an old person. You can look up an awful lot of stuff on the internet these days, yes. and that yes. just happens. But um, old people know how to use the internet too. And the internet is probably not a great place to go to say for the kind of personal question or information that you can get from someone who you've worked with, who you've lived with, who's watched you grow up who has a lifetime of experience in whatever domain you'd like to know about. What's the price tag on that? Like the visa ad says, you know, it's priceless. Part of the recipe for marginalization is identifying us versus them. In what yeah. ways do so in what ways do we identify older as <laughs> other in our own thinking? Well, it's it's kind of nutty, but you know every prejudice is based on othering. You know, seeing a group as other than themselves, which I know mm -hmm. is the phenomenon you're talking about. The mm -hmm. weird part about ageism is that the other is our own future older selves. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, it's and you see it in all this denial in our language, in our behavior, in our shelling out, you know, countless countless dollars for uh, skincare products that say they'll stop or defy aging. Clearly, that's not doable, and, and clearly, it's not a healthy message, but clearly, hello, that stuff doesn't work. You see it in people talking about older people as them, even though they themselves are, as I say, have rounded the third turn on the track. I mean, I was just interviewed by, actually, I'll name her because it was really great. Katie Couric is, is starting a, a podcast, and she was very, she really did her homework. We had a great conversation. She was doing some add-on clips at the end, and she said something about an older population and what, what they, they're going to need. And I said, you mean what we're going to need? Mm -hmm. And she did this beautiful, not, not really a double take, but she was like, right, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I get it, which is, which is hard. And I, I don't mean this make like a cheap gotcha moment, but, you know, she's in her 60s. I'm in my 60s. It's not them. It's us. Mm -hmm. We are older. So think about whether you refer to the older people you know, around you as us or them, right? Because the idea that we're never going to get old or that somehow by eating enough kale, doing enough yoga, whatever, <laughs> we're going to keep this awful imaginary point where we become old, which is, of course, not the way it works, at bay, that's all based in age denial, in seeing oldness as something uniformly grim and those who have succumbed to it as other, as lesser, as fearsome is really the belly of the beast. That's the problem. And if you see that some bad things are going to happen to you, but not all of them, mm -hmm. and that we adapt, and it is the one 
universal human experience and it is lifelong and it is powerful. And I think it harkens back to what you said earlier about taking some of that fear away by spending time with what you might consider as other, then it demystifies some of those uh, bad things, say, happening to you. It's really important to have friends of all ages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it is shocking how few Americans do. Defined as someone um, you would discuss a close, you know, personal matter with. Very few Americans have a a friend that's more than 10 years younger or older than they are. And 10 years isn't even half a generation. So one of the exhortations, probably one of my most fervent pieces of advice, is to make friends of all ages. Think of something you like to do and find a mixed age group to do it with. Right. Because and I think it's especially important for women. I have a a consciousness raising guide on my website, which is a free download called Who Me Ageist. And I'm adapting it for women in particular because consciousness raising is the tool that catalyzed the women's movement. If more older women had younger friends, we would be more generous and we would remember how hard it is to be in your 20s. My goddaughter just turned 30 last week, and I'm like, girl, it's just going to get better, right? Or all this fear around menopause. I love being past menopause. I don't know anyone who wants to go back to menstruating, for example. <laughs> and, and younger women, I think, would be more generous to us, right? And we would see that as long as we are competing in the stupid ways that capitalism and patriarchy dictate, who looks younger, whose underarm flesh is firmer. What Mm -hmm. does that stuff validate? It validates that the most important thing about us is how we look and, right. And, 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 and transitory and expensive. If we look at each other for what we value in each other as human beings and as powerful women, then we can resist these forces that are not our friend at any age. It's interesting you bring up being very intentional about picking different age groups to make a part of your social circle because, you know, look at any social media profile and it's a, it, it intrigues me when I do. And this is not judgment. It's simply an observation. I will notice that if you look at people's pictures on Facebook, for example, mm-hmm. it's a rather homogenous group of people. Yeah. So I guess what I'm asking is what are some maybe really actionable ways that we could, with purpose, go and seek out friends who don't look like us, friends who don't necessarily think like us, so that we can expand our yeah. ways of thinking? Well, I think in social media, and you know, I, I could be a lot better at this myself for sure, uh, join groups and follow people who do not look like you. And pay attention to what they do, you know, read publications. I mean, it is a huge concern for me that, and I just feel, you know, I need to, 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 I'm getting better at talking the talk. I need to get a lot better at walking the walk. Mm-hmm. The, the mistake that fractured the women's movement and gave rise to the term intersectionality was that white feminists ignored the issues faced by women of color. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if we're the movement against ageism is really getting underway, how do we avoid that? We avoid that by going. We women of privilege, we pe- we 
uh, not just women, you know, people of privilege go out and, and talk to and listen to people of less privileged people on the minorities and figure out what about what we are doing is conceivably of interest or of value to them and give them the voice, you know, in helping to address it. You know, it seems to me, you know, on the issue of, of race that, you know, people aren't shot for driving while old, you know, so hmm. racism seems so salient and so poisonous in our culture. On the other hand, you don't want to get caught in the oppression Olympics or which um, oppression is, is worse or more terrible than any other. Be, I mean, as Audre Lorde said, there's no such thing as a single-issue struggle because we don't lead single-issue lives. How mm. can those of us who are mm -hmm. concerned about ageism support the struggle of, of, of everyone, not just people of color, against racism, the struggle of people with disabilities against ableism, right? How can we make sure that age is a, included as a criterion for diversity? We're still at that stage of it. But that's going to be easy because the ground is plowed. Right. Once we get that momentum, it's going to happen fast. But how do we make sure then that our programs and our messaging and our images aren't just more white people, but really um, make common cause, you know, crossing, making common cause with the disability rights movement is really important. The equation of aging and disability is is not is is biased and inaccurate. But to pretend there is no overlap does neither group any favors. And the way it is now, there's just, we just have reinforcing stigma. I may be old, but at least I'm not crippled. I may be disabled, mm -hmm. but at least I'm not old. And mm -hmm, all that does mm -hmm. is dig the damn hole deeper. You live in a specific area and then if this cultural identity develops, okay? Yeah. And so in order to seek out different, you really have to be purposeful. Yeah, you to have do to do so. Be, you have to be purposeful, and it you know it takes courage. I mean, the and you need to find the people who are receptive. I mean, if a group of mm -hmm. you know African American women said we want to talk to you about aging, I would go to wherever they were at their convenience. But how dare I say, oh, I'm waiting for them to call me? You know, it's also my job to go find them and figure mm -hmm. out a way to approach them that, you know, where they're not just taking on the burden of explaining the stuff say, over and over again to the same clueless white people. So it's a dance, you know, mm. but I, you know, there, there are answers to be learned again from the disability community, many of whom cannot, cannot physically get somewhere, don't have the strength, don't have the money, you know, to learn from how they organize, you know, online is one is an obvious answer through, through webinars, through chatting, Facebook groups, and then figuring out ways to meet up. Even if it's just one or two of you, you know, one, one, you can learn a lot from one person. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. Just be open to it and try and be, try, try and reach out of your comfort zone and not just take the easy route. There was a part in your book that absolutely made me laugh. You called it the organ recital. Everyone can relate to this. <laughs> it's, I'll let, can you please explain yeah, it? It's not a term I invented, um, but it's the idea, you know, that a bunch of old people get together and, and um, the conversation consists entirely of, you know, what's wrong with my knee, my liver, how many times I have to get up to pee in the night, how much <laughs> everything hurts. 
like everything in this field, it is double-edged. As you get older, parts of your body don't work as well as they should. And I, for one, want to be able to say to my friend, how's your knee? And I want to know how her knee is. But I don't want to just talk about it. I mean, there's a funny anecdote from a woman I met who said she, she lives out of the country. She comes back once a year. She wants to get together with her friends, but she wants to hear about more than your organs and your grandchildren, but especially <laughs> the organs. And so and she, she has literally, she has friends that she, she had to break them of the habit. She'd meet up with them and they'd start on their gallbladder or whatever. And she'd say, I'm not your doctor and I'm not here to talk about this. And when they brought it up again, she would get up and leave or hang up the phone. I want to know, it, you know, if your knee or whatever it is, is really a problem for you in your life. I want to know about that. I'm your friend. I don't want you to feel like you can't bring it up. But let's expand the conversation to more than that. And let's remember that one of the reasons that this is so much of what older people talk about it is that they are denied a meaningful place in the larger world. If all they do is go to damn doctor's offices because there's mm -hmm. no place for them in the community, then no wonder. The organ recital is the main thing they talk about it. So this, too, is something that needs to be addressed at the largest social level, right? And I'll, I'll tell you another anecdote. I think it's in the book about a woman who went joined a retirement home, and she just got bored with how the conversation was either health or grandchildren. So she and her group agreed that those two topics were off limits. And they went to the next meal they were at. They all just sat there because they didn't. And then... <laughs> Someone to the next meal or whatever meeting was brought a poem and so wrote a poem and someone brought a clipping from the newspaper oh. and they actually sort of broke the habit. And then other people noticed like, gee, table 17 is having a blast. You know, I wonder what they're talking about. So these are habits. They are the passive least resistance. But there's a really interesting world out there to almost available to almost all of us, except the, the very poor and the profoundly disabled, whom, frankly, we should reach out to if we have more access to interesting stuff. I think part of the problem, the issue is, I'm reading another book right now by uh, geriatrician. It's brilliant. Louise uh, Aronson? Yes. Yep. Yeah. And what she talks about is the fact that an older population doesn't really have the time that they need in that doctor's office, even though they're going constantly. They're not given that time to really unpack what's going on, um, because, to really feel heard. Because of the way American health care is structured, which also mm -hmm. does not reward doctors for providing the kind of holistic, humane care that older people need, that doesn't prioritize the social services that would, in most older people, don't don't need a high. They might need a high tech medical intervention, but what they really need are social services that improve mm -hmm. their quality of life. Mm -hmm. I just finished the book, and have been. And if you go to my blog, my, the most recent post is "How is healthcare in America failing older people and why?" Mm -hmm. Read elderhood. I want to point out that Aronson calls throughout it for a profound shift in the underlying culture around aging. Amen. Um, can I read a little section from, from her book? Oh, please do. Biology matters, but it's only one part of a far more complex equation that includes attitudes, behaviors, relationships, and culture. That's a terrifying thought in a culture where ageism is more common than sexism or racism 
and most people of all ages see old age through a window rendered dark and dirty by mm. negative stereotypes. But there's hope. Beliefs have changed throughout history, and for individuals, they can change at any age, which is true. It's Ashton speaking now, just like you can change your health status at any age. Mm -hmm. And when beliefs about elderhood change, the culture and experience of old age in life and in medicine will change too, unquote. I'm working on the culture change piece about it, and, and I think you will, you will agree that it is woven throughout the book, and it is why we need a movement against ageism to address ageism in healthcare and every other arena in the workforce. Without this broad-based movement, we are not going to have the change that Louisa's brilliant book argues for. How does asking for help empower rather than shame us? There's a great quote in the book by a Dutch gerontologist named Jan Bars, which is that autonomy requires collaborators. Hmm. And, uh, it's, and it's not even a paradox. You know, if you can't drive anymore and you ask or hire somebody to drive you to the concert, who's in charge? Is it you? Is it the driver? You know, it is a complex dance. There's nothing about, about um, relying on other people and asking for help and giving assistance is binary. These are two-way transitions. I would like to strike the word independence from the whole discourse around aging because no one is independent ever, because all of life is interdependence. To aspire to independence to the end is a, is a goal that no one can achieve and it sets us up to fail, and it's incredibly expensive. It has a huge class bias because the very wealthy can purchase mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the kinds of support that make us appear to be, quote, unquote, independent. Mm -hmm. But it's an illusion and a painful one and an impossible one and a, um, and a destructive one. Thank you for that lesson because it's something that I was not conscious of using myself, and I have now thought about it and I've caught myself saying that in classes with my students. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, if there's one lesson of this whole project that I have learned, it is, you know, there's, there are no binaries. Mobility is relative. Cognitive prowess is relative. You know, almost all of us lose that, you know, processing speed for starters and the ability to remember the name of the movie you went to with what's her name. But it doesn't keep us from functioning just fine in the world to the end for the mm -hmm. vast, vast, vast majority of us, right? I shouldn't get up on a ladder anymore. You know, I can't, I just went up to my roof and lifted the box off and I was like, you know, to get out on the roof. And I was like, dang, that was easier the last time I did this. Well, mm -hmm. one of these days, I'm not going to be able to do it anymore. Mm -hmm. But I can get someone else to do it. I can ask for help and I can pay them or I can barter some service that I can do. I can walk their dog. I can watch their kid. I can type something for them in return for that. I have skills that they don't have. You know, it's nicer not to have to ask. It's, it's easier. It's simpler. It's nicer not to have to allow those extra you know, minutes for the ride share or for finding the damn ladder or for finding someone who can go up on the damn ladder for you. But people like to help. Those exchanges are not transactional. They are deeply personal. And when someone helps you, 
they say, gee, they think to themselves, maybe not even consciously, but you know what? Gee, when I can't, you know, get up on that step ladder anymore, I'm going to be able to find someone to help me. I'm still going to be able to do that thing just differently than I used to do it. And that's okay. I had an interaction the other day. A person who was younger than me was struggling, was moving into the building, and she was struggling with a bunch of large boxes at a door. All I did, Ashton, was walk up to the the door door. like a person. Yeah, and I held the door. (laughs) She thanked me so many times. It was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. Right. I mean, another classic example is someone offering you a seat. People get so offended. I'm not embarrassed about being older. In a culture that tries to shame you at every turn. It's not your fault. It's not that you're doing a bad job. This is a really difficult job to overcome a lifetime of programming. And the older we are, the longer we've had to live with this. So the more ages we tend to be, which is, an, which is ironic. And when you can get beyond it, you know, someone is just making a kind gesture. And you can say, no, thanks. But you shouldn't bite their head off because th- they're trying to make your life a little easier. You can say, no, thanks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, there's no shame in the, in, there's no shame. There's no shame in getting older. Why on earth should waking up a day older be a source of shame? And why on earth should ceasing to be able to lift, you know, something super heavy or walk as fast as everything else? I mean, I'm dealing with this. I was diagnosed in December with an acoustic neuroma, which sounds terrifying. It is a brain tumor. Um, but it's benign, but it occurs on the, the um, nerve between your brain and your ear. And I have lost almost all the hearing in my left ear. And uh, I'm going to get a hearing aid, um, but I have to wait a year. But in the meanwhile, I'm missing stuff. And it is really difficult to say, what, what, what? Or could you speak up? Or, I mean, I'm getting good at saying, talking to this is my good side, talking to this ear. You know, but it's really important for me not to feel to miss out on stuff because I'm embarrassed to call attention to it. Great point to remember. I'm going to quote another part of your book. The aging process itself confers benefits on the way we think. This is not what we're taught. We're taught to really be afraid of cognitive decline. So can you talk a little bit about that section of your book? Well, as we get older, we get better at dealing with negative emotions like anger and envy and fear. So that, I mean, that is the psychological underpinning part of it, of the U-curve of happiness, which shows Mm -hmm. that people get happier at the ends of their lives. They're happy at the beginning and happy at the end, despite living in an ageist culture, which is kind of amazing. So think what that curve would look like if we didn't live in a world that was so ageist. Hmm. Um, Another um, uh, thing that improves with age, one theory is, and it came out of of, um, computer science, not people with any kind of bias around aging, is that one reason it takes an older person longer to come up with an answer to something is that we're sifting through more information. Imagine that, right? The database is bigger. And so that the decisions we come to, and, and, you know, I never want to frame this as 
older people are better than younger people or vice versa. It's never the case. But one of the advantages that older people, for example, obviously in a, in a work setting, if they're older people in the group, is that we bring more experience and, yes. um, on, and more emotional wisdom because we've dealt with more people for a l- longer time mm-hmm. to the table. Mm-hmm. So those, that is also a benefit of simply having lived longer. It's, it's not that older people are more qualified to be president or more qualified to run the company, but a mixed age group is always best, just as it is best if it is mixed in terms of race and class and gender and sexual orientation and all the rest of it. Hmm. What are some changes that we can make as a society to end ageism? And what does it mean to be an old person in training? Well, becoming an old person in training is a phrase I appropriated from uh, geriatrician Joanne Lynn. Early on in there, she called herself that, and I was like, dang, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with this project, but I know that that's what I have become. And becoming an old person in training is simply a mental, uh, uh, maybe a trick, uh, that's sort of belittling it, but just a, a mental habit. To or, or a flip of a switch, you will someday get old. If you acknowledge that and make it part of your everyday consciousness whenever it pops into mind, it's not, not something you need to think about it at 12.02 for five minutes, but acknowledge that you will get old. Look at the older people around you with an open mind. Instead of looking past them, or worse, instead of looking not not only not seeing them, but ignoring them or looking away from them because mm. you will become them. That the future older you can be as far away on the horizon as you need her to be. You do not need to start shopping for walkers, but acknowledge <laughs> that you will someday get old. If you can do that, because which all that means is like acknowledging what we all already know. It just means stepping off or declining to get on this hamster wheel of age denial and trying to stay young and all that crap that an ageist society foists upon us, right? And acknowledge, we're going to get old someday, right? And it connects you to your future older self so you don't get stuck in that othering thing. It's hard to imagine being old when you're young. That's not ageism. That's human. But mm-hmm. if you can say, gee, you know, I don't know what she's going to be like, but still, she's not other. She's not never. She is future me. Mm-hmm. Then you are an old person in training. You can look at your language. I mean, I, I, the, the best thing you could do is probably um, start a consciousness raising group around age bias. Consciousness raising catalyzed the women's movement because women came together and realized that what they had been thinking of as personal problems, personal inadequacies, your thighs rub together, your husband won't give you money, you know, your, your boss pats you on the butt, whatever it is, those are not personal problems. Those are widely shared political problems that require collective action, mm-hmm. right? That's mm-hmm. what we need to do around aging. If you cannot get anyone to respond to 500 resumes, That is probably because you are not young and maybe you're a woman. Uh Uh-oh, that's even worse. And God forbid if you're a person of color and if you have a disability, you might as well just ride off into the sunset, right? Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. need to work together collectively and think of the benefits. Read my book. It's cheap on Amazon. There's a, um, started with two colleagues, a clearinghouse of free anti-ageism resources called Old School. 
And the link is oldschool.info. Everything on it but the books is free. Take Harvard's implicit bias test. Take the implicit bias test to see if you're ageist. Hint, spoiler alert, we are all ageist. <laughs> that is not a source of shame. The very most important thing you can do is to look at your own bias, and mo which most people haven't done when it comes to aging. Because we have, you can't challenge bias unless you're aware of it. The minute you get woke to it, which is really unpleasant and uncomfortable because no one likes to acknowledge that they're biased, then you start to see it in the world around you. And mm -hmm. that is liberating. That's part of, the, of what consciousness racing does. It's called, it's called cognitive liberation. There's a name for it. And it feels great. And, I mean, watch my TED Talk. It's free. It's 11 minutes. And circulate it. You know, take whatever tools work for you and spread the word because a lot of people don't even really know what ageism is, but once they see it, and I mean, uh, you please tell me if this was your experience, they're like, holy crap, it's everywhere. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like blaming poor people for being poor because they didn't work hard enough or they mm. didn't deserve it. These are massive social forces fed by capitalism and patriarchy that want us to stay in the dark and that want us to stay pitted against each other and that want us to spend money on use. It's true. It is true. But the, but the flip side is, is genuinely liberating. Yeah. And the other thing they do very well is instill a lot of fear. Fear, fear, fear. Right. Right. Fear, fear makes sells. us stupid. Fear makes us it stupid does. and fear, um, you know, and, and fear sends us back into our foxholes. So we don't look out and make common cause with others who are oppressed by the same forces. This has been an absolutely delightful conversation. Thank you so very much for uh, sharing your time and your wisdom today and raising our consciousness. What is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? I am fortunate enough to have in the mainstream physical sense of health, to have been pretty healthy, there it, mental health issues, depression, dogs, my family, the needle did not stop on me or my children, for which I'm profoundly grateful. I try to balance my work schedule so that I'm not always on the go and so that I have time, you know, time at home, time with my kids, time in my garden, time to balance my recreational life with my professional life. You know, I love what I do. It's deeply meaningful. And that's an incredible privilege because I like thinking, I think about this all the time and I don't want to stop thinking about it because it's interesting and because it's relevance to my daily life is obvious. Um, but I try and not, not obsess about things I didn't do or could have done better or should have done sooner. Mm -hmm. um, turn off that nagging inner voice and say, you know, you're doing the best you can and um, it's pretty damn good. I mean, it's hard even to say that out loud and believe it, but I'm working on it. And now it's time for practical tips. Anyone who's been to any of my classes knows that in the beginning of a yoga class, we sit quietly, we pay attention to physical sensations, the breath, our thoughts, mood, energy, and emotions. This is a practice to become more aware of our thought patterns. I invite you this week to pay attention to your thoughts and language about age. Invite yourself without judgment and with curiosity to refute any false beliefs that do not serve you. In addition, 
be sure to check out the show notes for links to Ashton's book, her TED Talk, and her blog to dig deeper into today's conversation about ending ageism. Thanks for being here. See you next time. 